we're in our series on following Jesus, and we're continuing with the topic of how God saves his people. We're going to look through the story of Esther this morning, and we're going to consider how God saves his people through Esther, or how Esther saves her people. Imagine you're, imagine you're just an ordinary person doing your job. You're nobody spectacular in the company or the business, but out of the blue, um, some world leader decides that they're coming to visit and they want to, to visit various different workplaces and uh, one or two representatives from the workforce are going to meet this world leader. And you're the person who's been selected to go up and, and show this world leader around your business, show them what you do, show them some of the other um, roles that people work in, alongside management probably as well. But imagine that you've got a real concern for something. There's a, there's a campaign that has been really on your heart and you've been working to, to really advance this cause You've been praying, you've been campaigning, but you've been keeping it pretty much to yourself. You've got this concern on your heart. And it just so happens that this world leader is the right person in the right place to be able to just change things. And you're going to be with them for 15 minutes, a half an hour. Do you mention to them? Imagine you have the opportunity, just in passing as you're walking from one place to the next, and you take up the courage, and you raise the matter with them. Now your boss might think, this is a bit presumptuous, you're going to be fired for just not keeping to the script, but you do so. And it touches their heart, and they really listen to it, and they decide, yeah, I'll do what you're asking. Suddenly, from out of nowhere, you're thrust into a position where you've got the opportunity to do something. And it's a risk. But you go ahead and you do it. And the result is that things are changed dramatically for the better. Well, the same sort of thing happened to Esther. She was born... Not in Jerusalem like Daniel was. Daniel had been born in Jerusalem years before, but then exiled. Esther was born in exile. She was a young girl. She lived in an environment that was hostile to her faith. As Jews living, they were taken to Babylon, but now it was taken over by the Persians. She was living in an environment that was hostile to her faith. A bit like increasingly us today, where we're living more and more in a secular environment. Most of the fervent Jews had returned to Jerusalem under King Cyrus, the king beforehand, who had allowed the Jews to return to their land. But 50 years later, there were still many, possibly the, the less fervent Jews, who were still in Persia. Esther lived in exile under the rule of the Persians. She was a Jewish girl. She was chosen to be king. She was chosen to be, to be 
by the king of Persia, his wife. Her people were exiled. Her situation was not ideal. The glory days of the United Kingdom, um, to the United Kingdom of Israel, not the United Kingdom of the UK, the United Kingdom of Israel, as you can see on the, the slide, it had split into the northern territory of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, but the southern territory of Judah. The northern kingdom had been taken captive by the Assyrians for centuries out of God's forewarned punishment for centuries of, of betraying him. They were pretty much decimated. There was nothing really left, nothing discernible left. If some came back eventually and had a, a sort of a semi-religious um, reconstruction around Samaria. And so the Samaritans were sort of the not quite faithful. Sort of, They hadn't got a pure faith. Um, so the Samaritans and the Jews later on were very much at enmity with each other. But the tribe of Judah in the south, they were faithful for longer, but eventually they were exiled for their disobedience. Later to Babylon. The Persians took over Babylon, but some had gone back to Jerusalem. Although the nation had been known as the Israelites beforehand, when it split into two, and all that was left really in the end was the tribe of Judah, that's when they became known as the Jews, the tribe of Judah, the Jews. Esther was <clears throat> living in what was Babylon initially. It was taken over by the Persians. You're probably familiar with Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down. The exiles were living in a hostile land, lamenting the glory days of when they were living in Jerusalem. The book of Esther weaves together the situation, the lives of four major characters as to how living in exile, living as a relatively nobody, Esther rises to prominence and ends up saving her people. Of the four characters, Esther is a young girl. There's an old, wise Jewish man called Mordecai. There's a Persian man named Haman who worked in the king's court and hated Mordecai. And there was the king himself. Of course, there were the Jewish people who were living in and around the, the king's palace as well as those who were living in Jerusalem. It's not easy living in a country or living in an environment where it is hostile to your faith. The situation today where Christians are living in a hostile environment is often can, compared with the Jews living in Babylon and Jews living under the Persian rule of Daniel, of Esther and others. Our everyday lives are often very different from our church lives. We, we go to work where people don't respect the things of God very often. King Xerxes' wife, the king's wife, 
had publicly humiliated him. So he looked for another wife. And Esther was picked. Mordecai, the old Jewish man who, who was her mentor in a sense, had told Esther not to let the people at the palace know of her religion, her identity as a Jew. And the king really loved Esther and was so pleased with her. Not only was she his wife, he made her the queen as well. A real privilege. Early on in their marriage, Mordecai found out about a plot to kill the king. Esther's friend Mordecai told her, she told the king the plot was foiled. So Esther and Mordecai were in the good books of the king. Mordecai's enemy, Haman, was promoted to number two under the king. But Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him like everyone else did. And Haman was enraged at this. And when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided not only to kill him, but to kill all the Jews throughout the whole empire. Now, this was quite some time after Mordecai had helped uh, the king foil the plot to kill the king. But Haman wanted to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. In Jerusalem, near the palace as well, everywhere in the land. There's something more than just the hatred of one man here. Sometimes can you trace the hand of the devil trying to kill God's people through the anger of Haman. So Haman then approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. The king agreed. Haman was powerful. The king didn't know who was who, who he was talking about. So dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered and annihilated on a single day. The Persian Empire was so big that one little people group didn't seem to have much significance to the king. But if you were a Jew, this, this law was... Very significant. This day was scheduled to happen on March the 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. Haman made it such that a law was made that anybody who wanted to take the Jews' property could kill them and take it. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. Imagine that. A day set in stone where people could go and commit genocide. Esther was living in the palace and eventually heard that Mordecai was very upset. She was living in a bit of a bubble in the palace. 
a lot of the political things and the affairs of state seem to just happen outside of her knowledge. Mordecai was very upset. She heard that he was upset, so she sent a message and asked why. Mordecai replied. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of the Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to, to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. Suddenly Esther was a relatively nobody put into a position where she was blessed. She was favoured by the king. She became the queen. Now she's the only person who's in a position of influence who can save her people. But it wasn't that straightforward. No one, not even her as queen, could go uninvited into the king's presence on fear of being put to death. It's a terrible way for a husband and wife to get on. <laughs> you can't even go to your husband unless he calls you. She was afraid, which was natural. But Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Mordecai knew that God would save his people. It might not be through Esther, but it'll be through somebody. But he says to Esther, maybe, who knows, Perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. The story goes on. Esther arranged a banquet for Haman, who wanted to kill the Jews, and the king. Haman, in the meantime, planned to kill Mordecai. But before the banquet, the night before the banquet, the king had trouble sleeping. And they asked one of his attendants to come and read to him part of the history of the nation. There was no TV or 24-hour TV channels or internet or anything to serve. So he got one of the people to come and read a bit of the history of the nation to him. And out of the book of the history of the nation was read that the assassination plot that Mordecai failed, that was read out to him. And the king thought, he asked, has Mordecai, who, who saved our life, has he been rewarded for his loyalty? And it was noted that he hadn't. So Mordecai, the next day, rewarded, or the king rewarded Mordecai greatly with robes and honor, and that enraged Haman. At the banquet, Esther spoke to the king. Well, before that, Esther had sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. 
she bravely went in and she arranged for a banquet. And then when she talks to the king, if I have found favour with the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman is there beside them. He grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. And the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. As the king was wondering how to respond, Haman grabbed Esther as she lay reclining and he begged her for mercy. The king came in from the garden and saw Haman to some extent all over Esther. thought he was assaulting the queen and he ordered that he be executed. the very execution that Haman had planned for Mordecai was applied to him instead. His plans had been turned completely round. But the Jews were still going to be killed. The decree had been given. There was a saying, there was nothing could be, nothing was stronger. If something was immovable, it was said to be as set in stone as much as the law of the Medes and the Persians. If a Persian law had been given, nothing, even the king, could not undo it. But instead of being able to stop the decree of people killing the Jews, Esther asked the king to issue another decree that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And so, effectively, the second degree decree enabled them to, to defend themselves against the first. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honoured everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. They were able to defend themselves against the men who sought to kill them. Some attacked them but they were able to defend themselves on that day. And as a result, <clears throat> because of Esther's actions, because of her bravery, because of Mordecai's encouragement, the Jews were saved. The whole people, the whole nation were saved. And as a result, they celebrated every year the salvation they had from Esther and Mordecai. They celebrated the festival of Purim. It's still celebrated to this day amongst the Jews. In fact, the ordinary Jew knows more about the story of Esther from the Old Testament than they would about the rest of the old Hebrew scriptures. Esther saved her people. But... If you've read the book of Esther, one of the interesting things it's that commentators note, it's the only book in the Bible that has no mention of God in it. 
God's name was not mentioned once in the book of Esther. But can't you see the hand of God written all over it? The enemy wants to kill God's people. And in his providence, the enemy is killed and the people are saved. In God's providence, a lowly girl comes to prominence and for just a time, such a time as this, she is in the right place at the right time and she's able to save her people. It was God who moved the heart of the king to respond kindly to Esther's request. Proverbs 21 tells us, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Just like Pharaoh wanted to, after Moses rescued the people and took them out of Egypt and they were on their way, away from Egypt, away from Pharaoh, Pharaoh started chasing them. And with his army, he wanted to chase them into the sea. But Moses led them across the sea on dry ground. The sea parted on either side of them and then the sea came back on Pharaoh and his army. God saved his people from Pharaoh and his army. God saved his people from the Egyptians. God saved his people again and again and again. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. And again, God saves his people, such as when Jonathan and Saul won a decisive battle against the Philistines in in 1 Samuel 14. It was not their military power that won the battle. It was the hand of God. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And so time and again, the Lord saves his people through the hand of Moses, through the hand of Jonathan, through the hand of Esther, And often he gives us free will to choose good or evil and sadly we see that people choose evil. Whether it's in Ukraine or in other parts of the world, whether it's locally, whether it's individual circumstances or global. But despite the free will that people use and as much as they have free will, God is still in control and God saves his people. Isn't it the hand of God urging people to be compassionate towards those fleeing Ukraine that has got people to to send so much donations and, and resources to them? We look to God for our salvation It may come through the hand of a Moses. It may come through the ordinary means of an Esther. But it is God who saves. Behind it all, it is God who is working in people. And if you find it yourself, you're being used by God or you're in a situation, don't think that it's just you that has the opportunity to do something. Realize that it is God who has put you in a place, maybe like an Esther, where you're able to do something, where he wants to use you. Philippians 2.13, where Paul tells us, 
It is God working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God often uses people to do his work, to help others, to save others. We thank God for those who help us. But ultimately, it is God who moves. It's God who works through them. And it is God who works through us as well at times. So be encouraged that God can work through you. If he can work through Esther, if he can work through Moses, who couldn't even, he wasn't even confident enough to speak. He needed Aaron to help him. If God can encourage and use us, he can do great things for us if we are willing to be used by him. Esther saves her people. God saves his people. But most of all, through all of that, Christ saves his people. To give an example, let me use an illustration from the Bible. You know the story of David and Goliath? Well, in Belfast, David and Goliath are the names of two cranes at Harlan and Wolf. But most people might know the names of David and Goliath, not so much as the two cranes, but basically any underdog who takes on the, the big powerful enemy and, and wins. You know, a David slaying a Goliath, it, it's in popular language. In the Bible story in 1 Samuel 17, there was a Philistine called Goliath who went up against, he was one of the, the, the soldiers in the army of the Philistines against the Israelites. The two armies were met for battle. They hadn't started fighting yet. Goliath was massive. Anything from almost seven feet tall to nine feet tall, people say. And David was the unlikely hero. David was a shepherd boy who came up to bring the sandwiches for his brothers, the food for his brothers who were in the, in the army. He was an unlikely hero. How could he overthrow Goliath? Well, the situation was that instead of two armies fighting each other and there being a lot of blood, a lot of people killed, it was quite common at times for them to say, okay, we'll present our best man, you present your best man, and they'll fight individually. And whoever wins, that army will take the other army as slaves. That'll be the conqueror. So out comes Goliath and challenges the people. And nobody feels able to go up against them. The ordinary Israelites are afraid. They're terrified. They're standing in fear. They're, they're pointing to others and saying, do you want to fight him? Or maybe not. No, if you fight him, you're going to lose. Who can we find? There's nobody. They needed someone to be a savior for them. Someone who go and represent them. Someone who slay the enemy. And there was nobody there. And then David comes along now, when you hear about the David and Goliath story, normally what people tend to take away from it is, 
You can be a David. You can go up against whatever Goliath you're facing. You can conquer. You just need to be strong enough and have enough confidence or even have enough faith. But that's not the message that we're meant to take away from the story of David and Goliath. It's not a message of you can do it. It's a message of you need a savior. If you were to try and um, decide who do you who do you identify with in the in the story of David and Goliath? Is it David or Goliath? Well, actually, it should be neither of them. We should identify with the ordinary Israelites. And we're there as part of the people. And there's Goliath. We need a savior to save us all. And David comes. God provides a David to go up against Goliath. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Jews. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Saul and the Jews heard this. They were terrified and deeply shaken. Goliath is the enemy who is threatening a lifetime of servitude. And who knows what might happen to their wives and their families if the Philistine army overtakes them in their land. But David goes in and David, he throws a shot, a slingshot and it hits Goliath in the middle of his head and he drops dead. The chances of him doing that naturally aren't that great. But God directed that stone. God directed that throw. It was the hand of God working through David that conquered the giant. And just like God sent David to rescue his people from the enemy, God also sent his son to rescue his people from the enemy of sin, the enemy of the devil, the enemy of death. There was only one David who the people could depend upon. And there's only one Jesus, there's only one Savior who we must depend upon for our salvation. God saves his people. The ways in which God saves his people through a Moses, through a a Jonathan, through a David, these are figures, these are ways to communicate to us over and over and over again in the Old Testament God's people need a saviour to save them. We don't need to be a saviour ourselves. We don't need to be the David and stand up against the Goliath ourselves. We need somebody who can do it for us. We cannot save ourselves from our sin. Our own good works are never good enough. No matter how good we are from now on, we will never be good enough. We will never be able to undo the impact of the sins we've already committed. We need a saviour to save us because we cannot save ourselves. Esther, David, they prefigure Christ. They illustrate Christ saves his people. 
when it comes to the ultimate battle for our souls, we shouldn't trust ourselves. We should trust in Jesus. He knows we are weak and sinful. He knows that we cannot do it for ourselves. And that's why he did it for us. God has provided us a saviour. Christ saves his people. The Jews were rescued when Esther put her life on the line for her people. The Jews were rescued, the Israelites were rescued when David put his life on the line going up against Goliath to rescue his people. And we are rescued because Jesus put his life on the line to rescue his people. The good news is that anyone can become part of his people. He has won victory and he invites everyone to come into his family, to trust in him, to be rescued by him. The good news is that we already know the outcome. The Jews were afraid before Esther went to the king. The Israelites were afraid before David went up against Goliath. But we do not need to fear because we already know what the outcome was when Jesus went up against sin and death. He is the victor. He has won. He has conquered sin and death. It's not as though when we choose Jesus, we're choosing, well, he might win. He has already won. It's a no-brainer. The question is, do we want to turn from our sin? Do we want him to be our saviour? Have Have we too much pride in our hearts? Will we not humble ourselves and trust in him instead of resisting trusting in ourselves or trusting in anyone or anything else? If we want to be on the winning side, if we want to know Christ Jesus as our saviour, let's place our faith in him. He went to the cross and gave his life for us. Let's trust in him. And if we do, we will be free, forgiven, righteous, adopted into God's family. As Paul tells us, despite all the trials that we might face here and now, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. He who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever Goliath we might see in our lives, whatever Goliath we might face, or think are an impediment in our way of eternal life, of salvation, of walking with the Lord. Christ has overcome. Overwhelming victory is ours. God saves his people. Christ saves his people. Christ saves us if we place our faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you so loved us, that you so loved this world, this sinful world, that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, for your mercy and your grace towards us. We thank you that you call us in the gospel to join the winning side, to trust in Jesus who has conquered death. We thank you that you offer us freely the gift of eternal life through faith. Lord, all we have to do is submit. All we have to do is turn to you. Lord, we thank you for each one who has turned to you. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all you have done for us. Help us to live humbly, Lord, as your servants, as your obedient servants, joyfully and gladfully living for you. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins when we haven't. Help us, Lord, to give thanks, to be joyful for all that you have done for us and all that is ahead for us in Christ Jesus. Amen.